0: This episode of Cold Case Frozen Tundra is sponsored by Podcorn. Whether you're currently producing your own podcast, or thinking of launching one, or even considering sponsoring a show to promote your brand, we highly recommend you take a look at Podcorn. We at Cold Case Frozen Tundra have used Podcorn since the start of our show. We love the simplicity of their platform, the ease with which we can communicate with potential sponsors. And the ability to find a match for partnership regardless of our audience size or level of sponsor investment. It's important to us that we partner with brands we support and would use ourselves. Podcorn makes it easy to learn about the brands and products seeking to partner with shows like ours, to communicate directly with no middleman, and to mutually decide if we're a great fit. If your brand or podcast is looking for creative partnerships without sacrificing creative control or working through a middleman, Click the link in our show notes and sign up for Podcorn today. This episode of Cold Case Frozen Tundra is sponsored by Badger State Brewing, who makes some of our favorite beers. Badger State's located right here in Green Bay, Wisconsin, just a short drive from where this season and last season of Cold Case Frozen Tundra take place.
1: If you listen to the first episode, you know that Badger State's Grassy Place Hazy IPA Is my all-time hands-down favorite beer. With the weather improving, I can't wait to sit outside and enjoy the Wisconsin summer along with a refreshing, grassy place. And sometimes when I'm in the mood for something a little bit lighter, I'll grab a brewski lager. It's awesome, especially when the weather starts to warm up.
0: When the weather gets warm, that brewski lager seems to provide just the right level of refreshment without taking you out of the day. It's just an easy sipper and a good one to enjoy
1: super sessionable great beer visit badgerstatebrewing.com to see the recently expanded distribution locations check out the beer list pick up some merch and even order beer for pickup if you're in the local area that's badger b-a-d-g-e-r statebrewing.com
0: check them out on social media and let them know that we sent you and support your local brewery Fox River Mall in Appleton, Wisconsin, stands at the center of a mile-long stretch of property that, not too long ago, was another typical expanse of Wisconsin farmland, marsh, and streams bordering U.S. Highway 41, which runs north-south from Milwaukee to Green Bay. Today, visitors entering the mall wind their way from either Wisconsin Avenue to the north or from College Avenue to the south, through an asymmetrical and meandering maze of restaurants, hotels, and big-box stores. That surround the mall and its expansive parking lots at the center of the property. Nowadays, it's nearly impossible to see from the parking areas through the jumble of structures that frame the property to the roadways that lie beyond. But that was not the case on August 19, 1992, when 20-year-old Lori Depis walked through the lot with her coworker and friend Tammy after the pair finished closing the graffiti store in which they worked at the end of its Wednesday business hours. Opened just eight years earlier. In 1984, with Sears as its only anchor store, much of the development near the Fox River Mall continued to focus on the mall itself as the other large retail anchors expanded the space by constructing additions to the building. J.C. Penney had completed a space opposite Sears in the late 80s and, more recently, Dayton's had built a new store, adding an entire wing to the mall just a year before in 1991. With all of this work to construct and expand the mall itself, the vast majority of the surrounding land had yet to be developed into the center of commerce visitors see today. And so, as Lori and Tammy confirmed their plans to meet later that night, said their goodbyes, got in their cars, and exited the mall in separate directions, Tammy had a clear view that night as Lori, wearing a black sleeveless shirt and black and white striped shorts, turned her gray 1984 rabbit, east onto College Avenue in the direction of the apartments where Lori's boyfriend and two friends awaited her arrival. Tammy's glimpse of Lori turning out of the mall parking lot would prove to be the last time Lori was ever seen. I'm your co-host Matt Hiskus, and this is Cold Case Frozen Tundra, Episode 2, Into Thin Air.
1: Hello and welcome to Cold Case Frozen Tundra. I'm Dr. Jordan Karsten, your co-host in this investigation into the disappearance of Lori Deppes. After she left the graffiti store just before 10 p.m. on August 19, 1992, Lori drove east down College Avenue, as Tammy reported. Her route would have taken her toward downtown Appleton and its bridge across the Fox River. Her boyfriend, Mark, lived just on the other side at Wilson Court Apartments, a total commute of about 15 minutes from the mall. Lori's plan was to meet Mark, his sister Lisa, and Lori's close friend Victoria at the apartment before the group would go together to Tammy's house to watch a movie. As we heard in our last episode, Lori does make it to the apartments. Her friends here pull into the lot around 10.15pm as expected. They're certain it's her as her Volkswagen Rabbit features a distinctively loud muffler, a characteristic of the vehicle that they had often joked about. Victoria, Mark, and Lisa hear Lori's car door open and shut, through the sliding door that leads to Mark's balcony. The apartment is in the second level, only about 30 to 40 feet from where Lori's car was parked. They continue chatting and hanging out while they wait for Lori to come inside. Only she never does. No one ever sees or hears from Lori again. She's gone without a trace.
0: To get a better sense of the scene, we went to Wilson Court Apartments to visit the site ourselves. We're now standing at Wilson Court Apartments, where Lori's boyfriend Mark lived, the exact location officers arrived early the following morning, a Thursday. A photo taken that morning captures the scene exactly as they found it. Lori's Volkswagen Rabbit sits parked between a Chevy pickup and a Chrysler hatchback in the middle of a small row of spaces less than 50 feet from the entrance to the complex off Wilson Avenue. A narrow strip of grass separates the front bumpers of the vehicles from the sidewall of a white garage belonging to the home adjacent to the property. There are no marks of debris evident on the paved lot. Aside from a small bit of damage near the rear bumper on Lori's vehicle, clearly repaired at an earlier date with a small bit of yellow duct tape, nothing seems out of place that would belie the mysterious occasion for which everyone was gathered. A styrofoam cup bearing the logo of Tropical Smoothie Cafe, one of several vendors in the Fox River Mall, sits atop the driver's side of the vehicle, just as one might place it while standing near the car, or leaning back inside to grab
2: additional items. The area looks very similar today as it did in the photo, Of course, the trees have grown and the lot has been repaved. But other than that, the only real difference is a fence that's been put up next to the lot to separate it from the house next door. Officers were probably thinking when they got here in 1992 just what I'm thinking right now. There are a ton of windows, balconies, and porches that face this exact spot.
0: Yeah, we know from Victoria's recounting of the events that the balcony of Mark's apartment overlooked this spot of the lot, but... I didn't expect it to be quite this visible.
2: Yeah, I agree. I mean, there is a second apartment building right here next to Mark's with two or three stories of units with windows and balconies facing the lot. There's the house next door only about 40 feet from where Lori was parked. And next to that is another small apartment building with nine or so units that in 1992, without this fence yet built, would have had a completely clear view of the spot. We're also right next to Wilson Avenue, which is only a two-lane street. And on the other side, less than 100 feet from where we are, a single-family home and a four-unit townhouse. All their front windows, driveways, and front porches face right at this spot. And you have to remember, it was summer. Windows could have been open. People could have still been outside. It was only 10 o'clock at night. Yeah.
0: I mean, I pictured a much darker, more secluded spot than this, but how many
2: balconies and windows would you guess face this spot? It's hard to say, but I would guess, between all of those kind of things, maybe 50, when mean, there are tons of windows, tons of balconies, and you are really close to a bunch of, of buildings. I mean, even to the left, there's an apartment building with, you know, a dozen windows facing this very spot. I mean, it's, it's in a busy area <music>
1: When police arrive at Wilson Court Apartments, they immediately begin to take statements from Mark, Lisa, and Victoria. Officers scour the area near Lori's car, looking for any details that might provide an indication of where Lori had gone. They make detailed notes of the parking lot, the exterior of the vehicle, and inventory the items locked inside it. Officers soon find what Victoria and the others had discovered during their search for Lori the night before. There's essentially zero evidence at the scene There's no sign of a struggle, no visible blood or marks on the pavement of any kind. There are no dents in the car or torn scraps of clothing caught in the doors or lying nearby. Even the soda cup is standing upright on the gently sloping roof of the car. It's not strewn across the ground after being dropped in surprise, nor has it been tipped over on the vehicle's roof during a struggle. It's perplexing. In a quote that would be used several times over the following days as the local newspaper covered the incident, Lieutenant Steve Malkow of the town of Manasha Police told reporters that the car in nearby area showed no evidence at all of foul play, though he admitted that this did not seem to fit with the fact that Lori had no history of disappearing without telling others where she was going. Lieutenant Malkow, along with Detective James Nadolski from the Winnebago County Sheriff's Office, would soon be assigned as the two-man detective team in charge of the case during the initial investigation.
0: The cup... Lori's belongings within her car, and even the vehicle itself, would all be taken by police as evidence and would undergo further examination as the investigation continued. As officers worked at Lori's vehicle, others canvassed the apartment complex and surrounding buildings. Similar to our own first impressions when visiting the site, the investigators quickly noted the large number of residences, windows, porches, and balconies that faced or overlooked the parking lot. Despite the late hour of Lori's arrival, Officers would tell local reporters that the area was well lit, it was often traveled by pedestrians, and that it seemed likely someone would have witnessed the incident. With all that said, officers interviewed over 100 area residents, according to Lieutenant Malkow, and no one reported hearing or seeing anything out of the ordinary. No one remembered seeing Lori exit her vehicle or get into another. No one, as Victoria noted, heard a scream or a struggle. The initial optimism of finding an eyewitness nearby was rapidly deteriorating. It was as though Lori had simply vanished.
3: Here you have this young woman... You know, working at the mall that we all went to. You know, that was that's our local mall. Um, that's where she's working. This this normal, everyday young woman who leaves work at the mall, goes to her boyfriend's apartment, and they know she gets there. She gets to the location she's supposed to be at, and then, literally, boom, she's gone, and nobody hears anything, nobody sees anything, nobody knows anything, and here we are, thirty years later.
1: Kira Schalhorn, whose voice you just heard, retired in October of 2020 from her role as a special agent with the Wisconsin Department of Justice Division of Criminal Investigation, known most commonly by its acronym DCI. For nearly the entire decade preceding her retirement, Kira was the agent assigned to lead the ongoing investigation into Lori's disappearance. As such, she's one of just a few individuals who can claim to hold the most comprehensive knowledge of the case.
3: DCI, where I worked, um, our role in Wisconsin as a state law enforcement agency is to assist local law enforcement when they ask us to help out in major cases. So um, in Lori's case, um, like I said, she went missing uh, from the town of Menasha, which is in Winnebago County. And both of those agencies worked on the case for I'd say the first month or so. And then when she was still missing after that period of time, they requested DCI's assistance in helping out with the case. So...
0: Although DCI had not yet been asked to consult with local law enforcement in the immediate aftermath of Lori's disappearance, and, in fact, Kira herself was still in graduate school when Lori went missing in 1992, her training and experience as an investigator, as well as her knowledge of the case, give her a clear understanding of the next steps officers took in the investigation. After gathering what meager evidence was available near Mark's Wilson Court apartment complex, investigators began to consider the stories of Mark, Victoria, and Lisa. Not only did they want to gather any possible clues from what the group heard and saw that night, but they also wanted to confirm the validity of their accounts, to determine whether any or all should be considered suspects in the case. As Lori's boyfriend, Mark's story was of particular interest to investigators. Officers found Mark's, Victorias, and Lisa's accounts to be consistent, though, and accurate and credible. Later, the group would all participate in a polygraph exam and would confirm their truthfulness. But each of them, Mark especially, would receive continued scrutiny in the court of public opinion as the story garnered recurring media coverage and extreme interest on an ever-expanding scale. Here's Kira explaining the initial evaluation of Mark and why it was determined that he was not considered a suspect in the case.
3: Well, whenever law enforcement gets involved in a case, whether it's a missing person or a homicide case, we're always going to look at the people who are closest to the victim. We're going to look at the spouse. We're going to look at the boyfriend. We're going to look at their family members, their close friends. So, I mean, I think it's just obvious and only uh, only natural that Mark would be looked at as a suspect early on um i think it's also been in this particular case i think it is um pretty well established pretty well known that mark was at his apartment with two other people waiting for laurie to come home i don't think that his um story is you know suspicious at all i don't think there's any um any uh you know lingering doubt to his story of where he was i mean we would look at someone like that what is their alibi what is their motive and I think in this particular case we we know and we knew pretty quickly where Mark was and that he was with two other individuals and that they you know very quickly after they heard Lori come home went out to look for her and couldn't find her she was gone.
1: So with little evidence found at the scene of the crime and no indication that Lori's friends were holding back any vital information, investigators were left to piece the facts together as best they could with the hope of uncovering a new line of inquiry. One key detail stood out from the evidence and accounts of the night's events that had been gathered, or to put it more accurately, from what was not included in Mark, Victoria, and Lisa's recounting of events. No one, none of the members of Lori's group of friends, nor any of the neighbors interviewed, Recalled hearing a scream or any sign of a struggle. That was
0: potentially meaningful. As they walk officers through the prior night's events in their interviews, Lori's friends consistently point out that they heard nothing after Lori pulled into the lot, which was very much unlike her. She would have called up to the balcony, knowing the group could hear from inside the apartment to let them know if she was walking off to buy cigarettes or on another errand. They state even more confidently that Lori was not the type to react meekly or quietly if approached by a stranger, she would scream. She'd fight back. Here's Victoria.
3: She was not quiet. She was not quiet. And she was not meek. Like for me, I mean, I'm five, one and a quarter and back then a hundred pounds, but I, I've had football players like try to toss me in a swimming pool or whatever. Right. That whole like, Oh, let's pick her up and whatever. Cause she's so tiny. And be able to wriggle my way out of it because they cannot hold on to me. And they're just amazed. They think I'm so tiny that they can just have control. And I'm like, if I want to get out, I'm going to get out. No, we were playing around. I just want to make that clear. They weren't doing anything or bullying or anything. We were having fun. But like, they couldn't. So I'm like, and and I'm loud. I'm very loud. I'm very aware that I'm very loud. And so was Lori. She was not quiet. So. If somebody who she didn't know started coming, like, she would very much be like, what are you doing? You know, like, get, get away from me. And
0: um, Based on the fact that Lori did not scream, argue, or struggle with anyone outside, the group members were adamant that they would have heard this. They share with officers their belief that Lori had been approached by someone she knew, someone who she was comfortable with who could have convinced her to get into a vehicle, or at least gotten close enough to grab her and muffle her scream before Lori had time to register an alarmed response.
1: Mark, Victoria, and Lisa's insight was good. Officers strongly considered the possibility that someone Lori knew or with whom she had interacted previously could have followed her to the apartment, engaged her in conversation, and abducted her before she had a chance to react, or lured her into a waiting vehicle. It would certainly provide a plausible explanation for the bizarre absence of any signs or sounds of a struggle in the parking lot right outside of Mark's apartment. The view that Lori had been taken by someone that she knew was not solely held by those who were present that night. Mary Wenger, Lori's mother, agreed, stating that it was not like Lori to go quietly and told reporters it was so out of character for Lori that it was more like
0: a spaceship came and zoomed her up in a matter of minutes. Not everyone close to Lori was convinced, however. Mary Hanson-Pokey, the close friend who had spoken with Lori just before she left for work on the day of her disappearance, told local reporters just days later, I think someone followed her from the mall. She's so sweet and pretty and she doesn't know how to tell people to get away from her. She added, I used to think it was somebody she knew, but I don't think so anymore. Investigators clearly had a small potential lead in the fact that Lori had not screamed for her friends, and that evidence on the ground, or lack thereof, supported that there had not been a struggle. But they still needed to sort out just what this meant, if anything. Here's Kira discussing a detective's thought process when considering this information.
3: I think it makes sense to think that it would have been someone that she knew, because there was no scream, there was no struggle, Um, there was no, there was no sign of a struggle. There was nobody heard anything. I think, I think that especially early on, that really makes you a person think, well, it was somebody that she knew it was somebody who she wasn't afraid of. It was someone she didn't scream when they approached her. Um, that's certainly one of the possibilities, one of the first possibilities that you would think of, um, whether or not there are other options, of course, then you think of the, you know, the true horror, the the scary, you know, thing of someone coming up behind you and, you know, with a chloroform on a rag and, or a needle full of some sort of drug and knocking you out right away, you know, something that wouldn't cause you to scream, wouldn't cause a struggle because you were just, you know, taken so, so quickly like that. Um, I think those are really, you know, the two possibilities that come to mind, unfortunately, with those two being the possibilities that kind of leaves it wide open to it being almost anyone.
1: It is certainly worthy of investigators' consideration that there's no evidence or sound of a struggle, but unfortunately, that alone would not be enough to narrow their search to only individuals with whom Lori had a relationship, or at least knew to some small extent. Officers did discover they had one other potential lead from the scene of the crime, one that came from the cup that was found on top of Lori's car. In dusting the cup for fingerprints, investigators were able to uncover what appeared to be a partial thumbprint, which was not consistent with those that they identified as Lori's. Though they were unable to make a definitive determination, the size of the partial print indicated to experts that it was likely from a male. During the ensuing follow-up investigation, detectives would take elimination prints from Lori's friends, as well as those working at the Tropical Smoothie Cafe that night. They were unable to find a match. In fact, no individual related to the case over the past three decades has ever been matched to the print. It's worth mentioning that while the print is certainly an enticing possible lead, there are also countless individuals who might have handled a styrofoam cup like the one that was found on top of Lori's car, more than could possibly be
0: tracked down for elimination prints. Yeah, I agree. It's easy to imagine that somewhere along the line, somebody could have touched the cup without gloves on. You've got employees of the manufacturing plant, those involved in the loading, shipping, and unloading of the supplies, distributors who deliver branded cups to various franchises, and then other employees of the restaurant itself who, even if they didn't work the day Lori bought the soda, may have been tasked with unboxing and stocking cups earlier. There's of course a chance that the print is the missing link to Lori's abductor, but there's also just as much of a chance that it came from one of any number of people along the way. Probably the only way to determine if the print is relevant is to
1: eventually find a match, then identify the context in which that person would have touched the cup. If the match comes from a suspect, great, but if not, it's probably just from somebody involved in the
0: process. Those items, the fingerprint and the insight into the absence of a struggle, are really the only two bits of evidence gained from the initial sweep of the area immediately after Lori was reported missing. To move forward in the case, police teamed up with family, friends, and community groups to search for more. While all involved were interested in any evidence they might be able to turn up, as the hours ticked by, they also began to steel themselves for the grim possibility that they were searching for a body.
1: For the next couple of days, organized groups searched a large forested area near Mark's apartment complex. Police dogs were brought in to assist the team on the ground, which consisted of officers, community volunteers, and members of the 84th Division of the Army Reserves. Police gathered a team of officers in boats to scan Little Lake Butimore and the Fox River for any signs that Lloyd had been dropped into a local waterway. Local aviation groups, including the Civil Air Patrol and the Theta Star helicopter, which services
0: a local hospital, volunteered to search from the sky. And we've actually had the chance to look over some of the photos taken from that search. Yes, we have.
1: The aerial search teams covered many square miles across two counties in the days shortly after Lori disappeared. We've been able to review the photos with fresh eyes, looking in particular for any signs of recently disturbed ground or potential new burials like I've encountered in my prior work as an anthropologist. Unfortunately, the height at which they were flying and the quality of the photos available in the early 90s, make it pretty much impossible to identify anything at this stage. We'd be looking for an area on the ground only slightly larger than a human, and in these photos, even larger cars and boats are really, really small dots. We're unable to make anything smaller than that out, given the photo resolution. In some of the photos, we even see boats on Lake Winnebago that are approximately 20 feet in length. and they're barely discernible in the photos, even with magnification. While the search was ongoing, Lori's family, friends, and concerned community members turned out in droves to aid the effort. They set up a volunteer headquarters at nearby Christ the Rock Church in an effort to coordinate the many efforts powered by the overwhelming community response. Soon flyers bearing Lori's image and listing her physical description and clothing papered the town. A local Menasha resident told newspapers that there wasn't a street corner in the area where a pedestrian waiting to cross the road couldn't
0: see at least four flyers from where he or she stood. Despite the massive search effort, only a couple of items were turned up during the days immediately following the disappearance. Searchers in your Mark's apartment complex contacted police after they noted a trash receptacle nearby, which contained what police would only describe as strange objects careful not to elaborate further. Investigators conduct a two-hour-long search of the surroundings. They confiscated the entire trash bin and its contents, along with a plastic swimming pool for small children, which they found that appeared to have a dried red substance on it. Investigators would later report, though, they had ruled out the items as being at all related to the case. At that time, officers noted details and license plates of all vehicles parked in the area they stumbled across one, a Ford Taurus, which piqued their interest. Not only had the car previously been reported as stolen, but the underside of the vehicle was immediately concerning to them as it appeared to be covered with mud and debris. There were sticks and clumps of grass wedged between various parts along the bottom, consistent with it being driven off-road for some time. Local residents told police they believed it had been taken through a nearby field, that there were tire tracks cut through the mud and brush. However, the residents also informed police that the car had not moved at all from the location in which it was found for nearly two weeks. It appeared the car, which was reported stolen about two weeks prior, had been parked in that spot since that time and did not have any link to the case. Local newspapers covered each new development in the case in great detail. Often
1: dedicating multiple front page stories to Lori's disappearance and the ongoing search to find her. Reporters interviewed officers, community members, and many of Lori's family and friends. Local news stories quickly began to draw parallels between the search for Lori Depes and similar efforts to find Barrett Beck, an 18 year old woman who was taken from Fond du Lac, Wisconsin in 1990. After a widespread search involving many volunteers and family members that in many ways mirrored the current search for Lori, Barrett's remains were found six weeks after her disappearance by a farmer who was cutting grass on his land near a roadside ditch where Barrett's body had been deposited. Interestingly, and reporters pointed this out, Barrett Beck was taken and her remains were found not too far at all from the area in which Lori had gone missing. Those weren't the only parallels. Detective Mylan Fink of the Fond du Lac County Sheriff's Office told reporters that foul play was first suspected in Barrett's disappearance after she was reported missing on July 17, 1990. Her vehicle was parked at the Forest Mall in Fond du Lac, located just off Highway 41, very much like the Fox River Mall where Lori worked. Witnesses had last seen Barrett buying cosmetics at a Walgreens nearby. After that, there was no sign of her to be found. Noting that both women were in a similar age bracket, both left behind a deserted vehicle indicating they were likely abducted from a parking lot, and both were last seen at shopping malls near US-41, Detective Fink told reporters the link between the two cases had not been ruled out. But he stated plainly, we have no reason to believe that the cases are related. It's too early to make that connection. He added, malls are like downtown now, and served as the social hub for many young individuals. That amount of activity would undoubtedly bring with it an increase in crime at malls, and the fact that each story involved a mall was not caused to link the cases. Moreover, as reporters pointed out, Lori Depis was last seen leaving the mall, but her car, and ostensibly the crime scene, was found near Mark's apartment, which is 15 minutes away.
0: Regardless of whether the cases were related in terms of their perpetrator, the two were inexorably linked through the effect they had on the local communities in the Fox Valley. Barrett Beck's body had been found six weeks after her disappearance, but at the time Lori went missing, the case remained open. Barrett's killer had not been found. The 1990 case had been a shock for many, a violent, inexplicable crime that rocked residents' sense of safety to its core. And now, just two years later, another young woman had gone missing without a trace. Another reminder that the Fox Valley community was not entirely the crime-free collection of small towns many viewed it to be.
3: I think it was definitely a weird thing, an odd thing. It was something that we knew about. We were, you know, I I was never one to be like, to know a whole lot about the news and to follow the news a lot. But I remember still to this day, knowing about Barrett Beck going missing, and, you know, Ronnie Eichstead, and Cora Jones, and of course, Lori. And I very recently talked to one of my friends who was a, a little bit younger than me. And she was, We were talking about this case and and talking about where it had occurred near the you know old valley fair mall and she said that she grew up in that area and i was talking about uh david spanbauer and the different people who had gone missing in the area and she said to me well no wonder my mom was so worried about me riding my bike around late at night you know because and i think that that's the general sentiment like what is going on who is taking all of these young girls and women Mm.
0: You heard Kira mention two new names there, Ronnie Eichstadt and Cora Jones. Though her disappearance undoubtedly shaped the perception of the entire time period for many, Cora Jones, a 12-year-old girl from Wapaka, Wisconsin, did not go missing until 1994, which was two years after Lori's disappearance in 92. With that said, we will talk about her later. The other girl Kira mentioned, however, should be mentioned here because she went missing just four days after Lori. As the search for Lori Depis ramped up in Menasha and Appleton, Ronelle Ronnie Eichstadt, a 10 year old girl from Ripon, Wisconsin, was reported missing. Ripon is just over 30 minutes from Lori's last known location. Another female, though this time a little girl, could be added to the list of mysterious disappearances and the growing unrest among many who lived in the area. Just who was taking these women and girls?
1: Within this time frame, human remains are found all the way down in Lawrence County, Missouri, which initially provided some hope of finding Lori but ultimately add yet another layer to the disappearances. In early September 1992, investigators put out a bulletin that the remains of a young woman were found in a roadside ditch between Springfield and Joplin, Missouri. Having made no match for any missing females in Missouri, They ask other states' agencies to get in touch regarding any missing women who might fit the description. The victim in Missouri has met a grim fate, having been bound, killed, and seemingly staged to shock anyone who found the remains positioned along the highway. Certainly not a death that you'd wish upon anyone. Yet the discovery and request for potentially matching cases give investigators and those close to Lori some hope, at least, of some potential answers. The news of the Missouri remains is widely reported in newspapers throughout Wisconsin. Investigators immediately submit information on Lori with the hopes that they've uncovered a match. Unfortunately, it was not to be. A dental examination of the victim provided a match to another missing woman, and another case that hit a little too close to home for many in the Fox
0: Valley. That's right. The Missouri remains were ultimately identified as those of Tammy Jo Zawicki a New Jersey resident who attended Grinnell College in Iowa and had been abducted near her broken-down vehicle just a few hours' drive from the Fox Valley along Interstate 80 in Illinois. She'd been driving back to school at the time. Due to the potential link to Lori Depis, local follow-up stories on the Missouri remains told the story of Tammy Jo's disappearance for their Wisconsin readers, adding to the sense that another woman should be added to their growing list of abductions at the time.
1: Although reports in all three local cases, those of Barrett Beck, Lori Depis, and Ronnie Eichstaff, were often combined in media stories, investigators proceeded with each as independent investigations. It was slow going, with very few new leads. Rewards were offered for Ronnie and Lori, at first for information which would lead to their safe return, then for information that would lead to their abductor, then for anything that led to the perpetrator or their remains. At the end of September, 1992, the body of Ronell Eichstadt was located over hundred miles away in Iowa County, Wisconsin, prompting a renewed search for similar answers in Lori's case. Nothing came. Concerned residents continued to report many details to investigators, but nearly all were eliminated as relevant to the case. More nefariously, the team of detectives working on the case, which had now been increased from two to four, were battling a rash of false reports, which impeded the investigation and required many hours of work to eliminate individuals who, by providing knowingly false information, had made themselves persons of interest in the case when in fact they had no connection at all. Officers would eventually make a public plea in local papers asking residents to stop providing false information, in noting that at least five people had been charged with lying to police due to this
3: when it comes to um, actual false information, um, if, whether it be a false confession or information that, you know, someone keeps trying to provide that has been proven to be false, that can be really, really time consuming and difficult too. And I think that someone like that and informa- false information like that, that continues to be out there is really can hamper an investigation not only now on the you know on the end when you're talking about you know work hours and time and energy of not just me of not just the, the person who's working on the lori's case but all of the other agencies that got involved because this person kept reaching out and reaching out and reaching out
0: years went by with seemingly no new information at least none which led investigators closer to a suspect national programs, including The Oprah Winfrey Show and Inside Edition, covered Lori's case, intriguing an even wider audience with the mystery and prompting even more tips to the police. Many are promising, but none pan out. The trail has officially gone cold. We've jumped forward to 2010, the 20-year mark since Lori's disappearance is approaching. Lori's case still feels surprisingly fresh for many in the Fox Valley area. Local media, coupled with the national news stories, have continued to keep the case in front of the public over all these years, despite the lack of any major evidence arising. Friends, family, and community members hold out hope in the face of years passing by without answers. And then... The case takes a major turn. Larry DeWayne Hall, a man convicted of kidnapping a young woman found murdered in Illinois, and a suspect in the disappearances of dozens of women, confesses to abducting and murdering Lori.
1: Next time on Cold Case Frozen Tundra
3: like 1995-ish, I think is when his name first surfaced as far as possibly being involved in this. Um, I mean, he, w- he was on the radar for, you know, 15 years uh, before, that ap- that, before that actual confession came about. So he was somebody who was looked at as a suspect for a while and then that confession happened.
0: To keep up with all the latest episodes of this podcast, be sure to hit subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. If you'd like to do us a favor and leave a positive review, it'd be much appreciated. And if you want even more of Cold Case Frozen Tundra, follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Frozen Tundra Podcast. You can also check us out online at FrozenTundraPodcast.com, where you'll find even more information on the case in our show. We'd like to thank Victoria, Kira, and the DCI, along with the many friends, family members, and concerned citizens who have helped provide information on this case. Our theme music is composed by Mario Cole
3: 06 and is available on Pixabay. All other guitar and bass parts are my own.